I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999, looking for a lawnmower factory here in 2022. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today is Billy Ray Bruton. She, Billy Ray, good to see you. She never really did find that lawnmower factory, now did she? Uh, she nope. did not find that lawnmower <laughs> factory. And that lawnmower factory caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. That simple Correct. little lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Billy Ray uh, is our friend. Uh, you may know him if you listen to my episode of Screen Drafts. We did the baseball draft, the epic baseball draft, and draft. any episode, any episode of Screen Drafts because he's on them all. 
Um, but Billy Ray, you have a new podcast coming up. I do have a new podcast coming up called The Incinerator. Tell us Tell a us little about bit it. about The Incinerator, because I, for one, am excited. Well, it's equal parts inspired by screen drafts and by another podcast, which I've listened to for over a decade, called Film Spotting. And i um, big fan of both of those podcasts. And I, I, I had sort of been wanting to do another sort of competition-based podcast, because obviously what Clay created with screen drafts is something, obviously, that I enjoy that you gentlemen enjoy. And I was like, what's a way that I could do a competition podcast that is not ripping off screen drafts because I didn't want to do that. And then, you know, something that the folks at film spotting do is they do uh, something called film spotting madness every year where they do a specific topic, like the films of the 1980s or the films of the 1970s. And they do it in an NC double a style bracket and audiences vote and it whittles down. But the way they treat it is, is that a film doesn't advance. It gets tossed into the incinerator. And so I was like, well, that's an interesting idea for a ranking game, sort of a subverted ranking game. Like, what if what if the films that are not making your final pick are thrown into the incinerator? So not only are you choosing the films that you like, but you're choosing the films that you want to be preserved for future generations. And mm-hmm. so essentially we're going to have a couple guests on each episode. Uh, it is a they come to me at the beginning with a list of 20 films each. We take those two lists, we combine them together, we create an ultimate list of 20. Then that gets sent to a super secret special guest that we call the engineer. And this is someone who gets to sort of dictate so, how in, the flow in, of the In our show case, goes. it'll be Cogman. I already know that. So go ahead. Um, I make no... <laughs> I'm kidding, I make, I'm kidding. <laughs> I make no... I, I will not be giving anything away on the engineer front. But the engineer, the first thing they do is they take that list of 20 and they turn it into a list of 25. So they add five films that they think need to be on there. They get to choose one film from that list that automatically advances to the top three or the final three, as it were. And then they also get to choose something called landmines that they get to strategically place throughout the game. And these can be anything from lose a turn, gain a turn, trivia showdown. There's all there's like over 40 landmines that they can choose from. They're growing every week. Some of them are real. There's one called Burn It All, which I won't even say what it is because I'm saving that one for when someone actually picks it. But there's a lot of chaos that can ensue from those. And then the guests take turns cutting films from that list of 25 until we get down to one film. Only one film remains. 24 films are gone forever, never to be enjoyed again by future generations. And um, we recorded our first one last night, actually, with uh, Graham Skipper and Clark Wolf. We did slasher former films. Ge- former guest for us, Clark, yeah. Clark Wolf. Yeah, Clark Love Wolf. Yeah. Love them both, and they did a great job. It was an awesome sort of kickoff. And, you know, the podcast is going to evolve. evolve and, and, and what Sounds the, awesome. The really cool thing is, is that the winners, the audience votes on who they think wins. So they mm-hmm. get to choose between the two guests and the engineer. The two people with the highest votes move on to what we call the Tournament of Champions in September, uh-huh. which is a Royal Rumble-style battle with all of our winners. And the winner, the ultimate oh. winner, the, the ultimate winner gets a, gets a $500 stipend to go to a charity of their choice. Holy fucking shit. So I, oh my God. <laughs> I, we're doing this soon. So, so, we are. Uh, we are. Yes. all right. So we, Phil and I are on an episode soon. Uh, I won't say anything Indeed. other than that. We're, we're coming on. I don't know, you know, what you announced or when you announced, um, Billy Ray, you said you, you did your first one last night. How did it go? I think it went pretty great. I mean, it was fun seeing, you know, you can, you can 
put all these mechan- you know, machinations into place and sort of have an idea of how it's all going to go. But then once you actually see it go, you get an idea of what works, what doesn't work, maybe what you want to tweak a little bit before the next episode. And I have a feeling at least this first season, we're going to be tweaking a little bit each episode as we go along. Sure. Um, just to get down to what we really want it to be in terms of like a competition, but also, you know, uh, we want it to be chaotic, but we also want it to be fun. And we're hoping that, you know, there's some good movie discussion along the way. Sure. Um, which, you know, when you've got Graham and Clark on talking about slasher films, you're going to get yeah, some good you're movie be discussion. Good. Yep. So you're going to be set. Well, we are not talking about a slasher film today, but we are talking about a killer. Today. That's yes. correct. That's correct. Yes. Um, so, I, I my, my my question to you, Billy, because Billy Rice, because yes. I, I believe that we we chatted a little bit uh, on Twitter about you coming on, yep. and this was like your you were like I want to do this movie, which yeah. I was thrilled about because quite frankly wasn't sure if anyone wanted to talk about Felicia's journey, so I'm yep. I'm excited that you wanted to talk about it. Um, did you see this film around '99? I saw it in '99. I saw it in theaters in '99. Did it impact you then? Like, did you find yourself... Okay, so it stayed with you. Okay. Absolutely. I had been a huge fan of The Sweet Hereafter, which came out two years before this, which was, you know, for folks who know Adam McGoyan, he's he's always been a big deal in Canada. But Sweet Hereafter was sort of his emergence on sort of the international filmmaking Mm -hmm. scene. And so I saw that uh, in 97, not in theaters. I saw it on VHS because Siskel and Ebert were big champions of that film. Yes, they were. And I watched anything. Siskel and Ebert was religion for me back then. I would watch anything they recommended. And so the name Adam Agoyan was in my head and I was very Mm -hmm. excited about what he did next. And then along comes Felicia's Journey, uh, which at the time... uh, uh, when it came out was sort of a, de- a little bit of a departure from McGoin, at least in his previous couple of films. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw it in Atlanta. That was back when I, you know, I was driving at the time and I was going all over the place looking for art house films and indie films. And this was one that I saw in Atlanta. I was waiting on it. I was ready for it. And, um, you know, this is back in the early days of like the internet and, you know, where, you know, I was still getting most of my movie information from like Premiere Magazine and Movie Line Magazine, sure. and, you know, shit like that. And um, yeah, I saw it then. Uh, it immediately resonated with me. It was a film I immediately adored, but no one else had fucking heard about. Like no one else knew what Felicia's Journey was. None of my friends, nobody else. I remember it being, Siskel and Ebert reviewed it at the time as well and were very effusive in their praise for it. And it's always been one of those films for me that, you know, whenever someone asks you, like, you know, what's a film I should check out that, you know, something outside the box or what's an underrated film or like a gym or something like that, without fail, I recommend Felicia's Journey because I think it is so underappreciated. I So I, 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 I want to piggyback on that. I mean, obviously, as our listeners know, I am from Toronto. Uh, so I, 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 you know, Adam McGoyan was a, is a very big Canadian filmmaker. I, I, you know, I would argue that, you know, up until the, the Denis Villeneuve and the uh, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée, rest in peace. Yeah. You know, it was Cronenberg. It was Agoyen. Yeah. Those were our guys. Um, and Agoyen, who has, you know, a bunch of smaller Canadian films that were quite successful uh, within the Canadian spheres. His, yeah. his first big sort of movie was Exotica, which was the film previous yep. to Sweet Hereafter. Yep. Uh, Exotica, a great movie. Um, Sweet Hereafter comes out and understandably kind of really is huge. Um, he's nominated for Best Director, which people don't 
talk about very much because 1997 was obviously, you know, that was the year of LA Confidential and Titanic and Goodwill Hunting and all those movies kind of sucked up all the oxygen. But he got a Best Screenplay nomination for adapting Russell Banks's book and uh, and for directing the film as well. Sweet After, I think, is a legit masterpiece. And I, I don't yeah. think that any of his films really come close to it in terms of just... It's a powerful movie that yeah. really is just him in his pocket. And by him, I mean Adam. This film, to your point, Billy Ray, was the follow-up, right? And as we all know, the post-Oscar glow of what you do after you've been nominated um, is, you know, sometimes it's a blank check, sometimes it's a departure, sometimes it's someone playing it safe and just wanting to capitalize on the new exposure that they have. This movie, for all intents and purposes, is none of those things. Yeah, like he, yeah. It, it, it is, and and it is kind of baffling in its own way as to why he made this choice. Um, I would argue that coming off the sweet hereafter, he probably had his pick of what he could do. He could do anything he yeah. wants, really, and he decides to adapt this uh, this book by William William Carver. William, I'm, I'm drawing a uh, William Trevor. Yeah, um, and. Uh, it's 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 a it's a head scratcher. I, I like the movie quite a bit, and we'll talk about obviously we'll talk about the film. But I wanted to kind of get your thoughts. I mean, we're all kind of Oscar prognosticators here. Sure. We all talk about this, you know, a fair amount awards, what have you. Like Kenny, you know, you I don't know how many of Adam McGoin's films you've seen. You've probably seen Exotica and Scrapper, I assume, right? Yeah, three. Yes, but this one, right? Um, <clears throat> this is an odd choice, right? I mean, this is this is sort of it's yes. Well, it's <laughs> it's particularly odd because it is so incredibly different from Sweet right. Hereafter. Right. Sweet Hereafter is about the aftermath of something uh, entirely a horrific and event, it, yeah. yeah, and a horrific event, and it's necessarily a uh, it's a contemplative, it's a meditative movie. It's you know, there's certainly a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of you know, active characters, mm-hmm. but the thing already happened in this movie. Right. Um, you're waiting for the thing to happen. It's yeah. there's, there's, there's dread and there's tension throughout the film. And in this movie, the thing never actually happens. So <laughs> it's it, like, it's, yeah. it's the, like tonally mm-hmm. and from an audience's point of view, it couldn't be more different. So if you were someone who came to a Goyan through Sweeter After, like so many people did in 97. Because yep. Billy Ray, like you, I was a, you know, Siskel and Ebert disciple. And if they told me to go see something, I went and saw it, particularly in like 97, right? Yeah. Yep. Like that was my pocket, right? 96, 97, 98, 99. Mm-hmm. Um, after, after that, nothing about, I think, Felicia's journey uh, speaks to a, a person who found a Goyan in 97. Now, if you yeah. knew, if you were someone who saw Exotica, you may understand Maybe. that yeah. this guy didn't didn't come up out of nowhere, and he doesn't only make you know quiet movies about, about gay Canadian children. Uh, but it's yeah, I do think that this is look, it's an interesting follow up, but in the scope of his career, it makes a lot of sense to me because um, it is but kind I, of. I, yeah, go ahead. You you mentioned something that I think is uh, is worth talking about a little bit. Uh, there's a scope 
to Sweet Hereafter. Sweet Hereafter, visually, when I think of that film, I think of those big sweeping helicopter shots of British Columbia, yeah. of that bus driving down you know, through, the, through this sort of in between the mountains and what have you. Um, the movie has an expanse to it that's really beautiful. And the film is really in its own way. I mean, this is a, a weird illusion, but it's kind of like Adam McGoyan doing what Peter Jackson did for New Zealand, right? Like lots yeah. of chopper shots of look at how beautiful this country is, right? Yeah. And this movie is very small and very intimate yeah. and mostly indoors. Um, that's not a knock on it. And, but and, to- the, and the wide shots are exclusively of a power plant. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, or or maybe like a medium in a kitchen. Yeah, you know I mean, I mean? Like, yeah. Bourbon, literally, Birmingham is gross. I think yeah. is what you're supposed well, to think. And and but you know that's the thing too. Like, how many films are set in Birmingham? Like, not right. many. Right. Like, it's it's right. it's very unique in that way. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's here. My my big sort of the thing that I remember. I saw this film uh, in '99. Uh, it was a big Toronto Film Festival movie. It was a it was yeah. a gala presentation. It was a big movie. Um, and I remember seeing it and and going in with the expectations of Sweet Hereafter and all of that. Uh, it is very sort of, um, uh, it's really trying to deconstruct the notions of a serial killer in a lot of ways. It's kind of zigging and zagging around the tropes that exist within that kind of milieu. Um, Bob Hoskins is fucking incredible. Uh, he should have got an Oscar nomination for this performance. Yep. Um, he's tremendous in this film. And, and, I would argue that maybe this film didn't hit me as hard as 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 it hit you, Billy Ray, or even as it hit Ebert. But the reason to make this film, the reason I'm thrilled this film exists, is because of that. Because it's it's a beautiful document of what a tremendous actor Bob Hoskins was. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And in in as to why I feel like maybe a Goyan, this was his follow up. I mean, yeah. I think there are some filmmakers who the Oscars just don't mean shit to them. Like, sure. they just, they really don't care. And I can't say that that's Adam McGoyan, but I would say this just feels like such a a personal project. This is like, it's like when you, it's like me, if I read a short story, I read a book, like, boy, I'd like to adapt that one day. Yeah. And then one day comes and you've got a successful film and it's like, okay, I can make anything I want now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe now's the time to make this personal project, which I wouldn't be able to make any other time. I'll use that clout that I have to make it. It reminds me somewhat of, even though very different circumstances, but when you're talking about a filmmaker making something that seems very out of character for them, Mm -hmm. it reminds me of something like Matchpoint and Woody Allen, where you watch Matchpoint and I don't get an ounce of Woody Allen in that film when I watch it. For better or for worse, I don't get an ounce of it. It's so uniquely different than everything else he's done. And... I, I can't necessarily say this is so uniquely different to everything Agoyan's done. Agoyan's done erotic thrillers, and he's done things like that. He's he's certainly tackled thrillers before, and um, but there's just something that's so meticulous about the way this film is 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 written and directed and pieced together, and very meticulous, almost in the way the lead character is meticulous in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And um, which does is different to me than a lot of other a lot of Agoyan's other work, which to me, even his best work, as great as it is. And I love I love a lot of Agoyan films. There's a little bit of shagginess to a lot of his other films that feel somewhat shaggy. And I think about Exotic or I think about Ararat or what, you know, there, this film does not have that quality to me. This film is very focused and meticulously pieced together. And 
that separates it to me from the rest of his sort of canon. Well, it's it's his first sort of overt period piece, which is part of it a little bit yeah. too. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I have sort of, I, I don't want to say I have a love-hate relationship with Adam McGoin because that's not fair. <laughs> I haven't seen all of his films. I think, I think it's I, actually fair. I think that's fair. Like his output over the last like 20 years has been really questionable. Yeah. yeah. he's. So I, I, think, I actually have seen Chloe, which I think is a pretty bad movie too. Yeah, it's, oh, I mean, The this Devil's is, this Not? Is, yeah. Ooh. He's just, I mean, I, I would argue, and maybe I'm wrong, that it does feel a little bit like he lost the thread. Like there is this balance that yeah. he finds um, of sort of high school drama pretension mixed with kind of, you know, um, tawdry sexual scandal mixed with like deep rooted emotional trauma. And like, he's, he's really kind of, he finds that balance most of the time, but if it tips, I do think that his stuff can become, I think that what, where the truth lies is also not a great movie. Um, I think that when he gets, I I don't want to say overtly sexual, but to some degree there is that where it's just like when it gets into this place where it it just feels trashy in a way that I'm just not sure he's really going for. Um, He's just, it's, it is unfortunate because I do think like he had the world in the palm of his hand after the sweet hereafter. And I think that perhaps the fact that this film wasn't embraced, um, he then goes to something I would argue might be more personal, which was our at, which speaks more to his his upbringing and his cultural yeah. background. Um, and then he tries to do where the, where the truth lies, which is like feels to me like a big sort of you know L.A. confidentially esque kind of you know sexy thriller in Hollywood thing, which doesn't really work. Uh, Chloe, which uh, Kenny mentioned, which is the um, Amanda Seyfried, Julianne Moore, Liam Neeson yeah. sort of. Uh, sexual, you know, psychosexual thriller thing. Um, Devil's Knot, which doesn't really work. And it's just sort of like the, the, the guy kind of really, I don't know, it's like he, it just feels like it kind of got away from a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair too. I think some filmmakers are just not able to capitalize on that sort of which sure. when, when, it's, when it hits, that moment that it hits for them. Totally. There's some that are just not able, and either because they're not interested in it and they're interested yeah. in just sort of totally possible. Yeah. following their own path and doing what they want to do, which is perfectly fine and admirable. Uh, but I definitely think he is one of those who like, you know, he just kind of stayed on his own unique path and didn't really let that, the advantages that came, he didn't really need, either he didn't want to capitalize on them or didn't have the capacity to. Uh, but I, I, won't, I just kind of want to take us down yeah, a little alternate history, though. Like, I think we're going down an alternate history. Yes, this movie is successful in it. it, it I, I'm not saying commercially, but I yeah. think the three oh. of us would agree yes. that artistically, this movie is successful. Yes. So, totally, whatever he set out to do, uh, I think he did it. And I think what's interesting is more that he. It's it's not as if he went. And it's not as if, to me, this movie is necessarily the kind of film that wouldn't find an audience. Movies like this find audiences. Um, and it's not as if Bob Hoskins was, you know, some, you know, British stage actor no one knew. Bob Hoskins was an established movie star. Um, so I think that I, I, I think that you know, this falls more where Billy Ray was taking at the beginning, which is 
he really did what he wanted to do here. He really took the project, the 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 the, the project or the the property that he wanted to work on, and did a really great job with it. Mm-hmm. It's everything he did after that I feel like is kind of losing the thread a little bit. Um, and he's kind of had you know twenty years almost in the wilderness. Well, I think that. I- it's worth noting that this film is an artisan movie in the in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I bring that up just because you know '99 artisan had some fucking bangers, uh, some stuff that made some real money, and then Where stuff which? that I, I just don't yeah. even know. I don't know what Hot Boys is. Do you know what Hot Boys is with a Z, Kenny? Uh, uh, no, so, but we'll do it, of course. We'll do it eventually. Uh, the big ones you had, Ghost Dog, Buena Vista Social Club, the biggest one being obviously Blair Witch Project, yeah. uh, Stir of Echoes, The Minus Man, The Limey, and this. Um, those are those are the big ninety nine movies that it yeah. had. Artisan was a big company. It doesn't really exist anymore. It got swallowed, I believe, by yeah. Lionsgate, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, but it 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 really kind of had its own little niche and its own little um thing. That's a gr- that's a great year. I that's mean, a, that's I a really, agree. really really strong that's year. A solid year. Yeah. Hot Boys uh is <laughs> a master is a master P movie that also starred Gary Busey. Oh wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Hot Boys coming to Let's your see. ears have a theatrical... uh, sometime later this year. <laughs> but it was I, released I, on it was released on January first, nineteen ninety nine. I guess we'll be doing it. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> but what's funny is you name those films that Artisan had, and and yep. it makes me think that a part of the issue with maybe this film and why this film wasn't better uh, recognized or appreciated is because I don't know that Artisan had figured out how to do that yet because you look at the other films that you mentioned like The Limey and other films mm-hmm. that should have probably like The Limey's only just now starting to sort of get re- reappreciated and, and it's a and, masterpiece and, now yeah, yeah. 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 And same, like, same with Ghost Dog I think yep. exactly yep. I think I think Blair Witch hit and suddenly there's all this money, there's all these possibilities and I just and, and so they've had the ability to get all these films and acquire these films or because I don't they didn't produce this film, they just I think they it didn't, acquired this it. was a yeah, this was a, dis- a pure bunch distribution. Of yeah. And it's like I just don't think they knew how to effectively market and and sell these films in a way totally that would get them the kind of like attention and the kind of like awards recognition that would have kept a film like Felicia's Journey certainly in the conversation more over the years. Totally. And I would I would then argue quite frankly that with the success of Blair Witch and the wind at its back, I mean just a, a you know a dump truck of money that lands in their lap, they essentially stop trying to do these niche uh auteur yeah. kind of driven movies and they kind of go down the path of like what's cheap and dirty that we can market on a, on an easy thing. And we yeah. know that we're going to make money off of it. And it's a bummer to your, I think to your ultimate point, which is yeah. that Felicia's journey kind of falls in this weird little kind of, you know, slipstream of, they just have a hit of Blair Witch, which is in July. This movie yeah. comes out in November. I think that the, the feeling I had, at least I, if I remember correctly around the time was like, this is a Bob Hoskins piece Big push for him to get a Best Actor nomination. That's our best chance of this thing, you know, making its money back and doing relatively well. I don't know what the budget of this film was. I couldn't find out what the budget was. Yeah. Um, It didn't make much money. It only made like $825,000. But I can't imagine the budget was more than, you know, maybe 15 or 20. But still, I think that it speaks to the time 
you know, we're, we're talking about sort of this time in movies. Uh, Canadian cinema is in a bit of a lull as well, yeah. if we're being completely frank. You know, Cronenberg has Existence that comes out in 99, Kenny's favorite film of 1999. And Kenny was not a fan of Existence. <laughs> um, but, um, <laughs> you know, that was a big Cronenberg play. That was a big, like, I want box office. I th- yeah. Yeah, this That was the most, like, Cronenberg thinking that he had a box office hit on his hands. God bless him uh, for thinking that's a box office yeah. hit. But, like... That was him really playing for like, you know, popularity. Um, and then you've got this, a Goyan coming off of Sweet Hereafter. So there is this moment and it just kind of doesn't all come together in the way that I think that they were hoping. But it's a great film. I want to give the synopsis very quickly for our listeners. Uh, pregnant Felicia, played by Elaine Cassie, has come to England to look for her boyfriend, who she knows works at the infamous uh, lawnmower factory, <laughs> but not which one. Uh, there she meets an older caterer, Joseph, uh, Joseph, what's his name? Hilditch, Hilditch. Um, played by Bob Hoskins. Joseph is obsessed with the old tape of a TV chef who is seemingly his mother. However, he is a mysterious character who lies and steals from Felicia while putting on a friendly face. Eventually, Felicia begins to stay with Joseph, but things turn bad, turn from bad to worse when he puts more of his schemes into action. Again, classic Google. Uh, classic yeah, Google yeah, yeah, um, they're, usually, they're usually better written than that one, though. <laughs> I agree. This is just terrible. Uh, Felicia's journey came out on November 12th, 1999 against Pokemon, the first movie, The Bone Collector, Mm -hmm. Dogma, and The Messenger. Uh, As I mentioned, it would go on to make $824,000. It's got 88% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 71% from audiences. I'm just going to read a brief clip of uh, Roger Ebert's three-and-a-half-star review where he said, the key to Felicia's journey is that it has understanding for both characters, for Felicia, who is innocent, and for Hilditch, who is the product of a childhood which turned him out very wrong. Adam McGoyne is drawn to stories like this, stories about the lasting injuries of childhood, and in one way or another, both his Sweet Hereafter and Exotica are about damaged girls and predatory men. Felicia's Journey is based on a novel by William Trevor, and when he read it, Agoya must have felt an instant empathy with the material. Agoyan is such a devious director, achieving his effects at a level below the surface. He never settles for just telling a story. He shows people trapped in a matrix of their past and their needs. He embraces coincidences and weird lurches in his plots because he doesn't want us to grow too confident that we know how things must turn out. He always, sorry, he almost never provides a tear-jerking scene, an emotional climax, a catharsis. It's as if his films inject materials into our subconscious and hours later, like a slow reaction to a laboratory retort, they heat up and bubble over. You leave Felicia's journey appreciate it a week later, you were astounded by it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I agree that a Goyan stuff at first blush does. I mean, I guess maybe the sweeter after is the exception to that. I think that movie is a little bit more on its face in terms of what it's trying to make you feel. But I think Exotica and this definitely have that vibe in terms of like, how am I supposed to feel? What are my takeaways from this? Nothing is binary. Um, people putting on facades. Yeah. And let's keep in mind too. I mean, you just mentioned this. I just want to like the fact yeah. that this is a man who directed Exotica, Sweet Her After Felicia's Journey and Ararat back to back to back to back. That's one hell of a run. But yeah, what I appreciate about Agoya and I think more than anything, and I also think about films of his that I really enjoy, like Adoration, which is a film of his later mm-hmm. on that I really liked. Mm-hmm. I like that he sort of is constantly trying to subvert your expectations about mm-hmm. whatever subgenre or genre that he's playing in. And, and Roger Ebert mentions that in his review. And I think it's very effective here because this film does not go, it certainly did not go where I expected it to go. No. And um, 
And they do. And, and, and I do love the fact that you've got this character, this Hilditch character that could by in the hands of another actor or another filmmaker be just a straight up, you know, monster. Villain, monster. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he adds so much nuance and there's so much empathy for that character throughout the film that, that he gives us, which is not something that you necessarily you want it, but you don't like, you don't really want to empathize with the monster, but you're glad that you do to some extent, because I think it makes it pay off so much more sweetly than it would otherwise. Yep. And, you know, again, not a film. I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody who hasn't seen it. And I assume most people have not seen it, frankly. We're going to probably spoil the ending, I think. I think. Well, probably. okay. Okay. <laughs> right? Okay. I didn't saying. know. I didn't know if we were in one of those. Oh, I didn't yeah. Know if this we are. Well, yeah, we're going to spoil it. Yeah. No, um, no. So yeah, so uh, but you know, like they said, like you know that that was a that was a loose description, but mm-hmm. yeah. So you know, she comes she comes to Birmingham looking for the father of her unborn child, Johnny. Um, Johnny, but where, but where she comes from is important. I think. That- comes, oh no, no, she comes from Northern Ireland. Ireland. Yeah. This yeah. is steeped in some troubles and some mm-hmm. some troubles yeah. uh, gloss over it. Yeah. You know, uh, Johnny is in the British Army. Her father. Uh, who is a very staunch Irishman does not think does not want a daughter of his dating a member of the British Army because mm-hmm. of all the 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 murder and mayhem that has ensued over the previous years. Mm-hmm. So she flees to Birmingham to the supposed lawnmower factory where she believes Johnny works. <laughs> Obviously, there is no lawnmower factory. He is in the British Army, but um, and <laughs> and you know it's one of those things of like the people that you just happen to stumble upon. Like she's walking by one day. Hilditch is driving out one day and boom, like that one chance encounter is what brings them together. And, um, you know, the film does seem like a creep though. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, he's straight up creep. At at no part from the moment he meets her, do you not know something bad is going to happen? And don't get in his car, Felicia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, what, one of the first things you see Hilditch do, I mean, he's, he's a, chef-ish guy he kind of just runs the cafeteria uh but he goes home and cooks these elaborate meals for himself based on a uh an old video of a julia child-esque but also sexy chef woman adam mcgoy's wife yeah yeah that actress very sexy very sexy um who also is his mother by the way you find out later it's his mother yeah but he goes into his closet when his, I guess, his food processor breaks or something and has about 50 other food processors <laughs> from the same, you know, woman's yeah. brand. And at that point, you're like, this isn't just a guy watching yeah. Julia Childs. Well, there's um, also the, the credit sequence, which I think is really beautifully done, is this yeah. long winding tracking shot through the house with this sort of ominous kind of 50s, 60s music playing. Um, And that we eventually get into the kitchen where we see him cooking and watching this old sort of Julia um, Child-esque television set, uh, this like little black and white television set. Um, It's, it really does set the tone really beautifully for like something's off from, from, from the jump, something's off. Oh Yeah. Yeah, something they definitely established that early on, and and they piece it together more and more as you go along. Like, um, like you know, there's a moment where he eats this sausage roll and immediately has to run and throw it up because, like, so much of him is steeped in that trauma from childhood. You don't get, you only get pieces of it in the old videos that you're watching because he's a, he's in the old videos too as a young boy, and you sort of piece together that his childhood was probably 
suspect. You like, think? we don't know exactly everything that happened to him as a child, but we know it has traumatized him to the point that he ha- he now has a severe Norman Bates mother complex and is now, uh, you know, and now is who he is. And um, so, yeah, we know right away that something's off. So when he meets her, we, we're immediately, we have an idea of where we think this is going to go. Yeah. What I did, what I did, you know, things that you maybe don't expect going into it are there are a lot of flashbacks. You get a lot of flashbacks into, you know, uh, into their past and, and things that have happened before. And um, and that kind of helps weave together their stories more. But you always just have that underlying dread of knowing like those two paths are going to cross in a major way at a certain point. And it's probably not going to work out well for Felicia. <laughs> well, I think that there's something. There's a couple things that that uh, that I wanted to to piggyback on. That the, the first is um, this film is interestingly sort of metatextual. It's it's got it's got a lot of different media in terms of different types of film within the movie. You've got the black and white television show that the mother does, the cooking show. You've got the grainy video from inside his car of the various victims and the women that he's picked up. Um, you've just, you've got the flashbacks. Like this movie is surprisingly fragmented in interesting ways um, that does, does make the film keep you on tether hooks a little bit. Like you're not, you don't, totally know where this is going despite the fact that you know that this man has nefarious purposes you're just not entirely clear you're also you're also with felicia as she flashes yes. back yes yes so yeah. you're not always on uh hildreth you know she you are you're getting some context of her and johnny who is the you know the, the boyfriend father of her child thing and her with her father too who basically says you're carrying the enemy um yeah, which is an, you know an interest you know essentially kicks her out of the house, I guess, it, which is, you know, it, kind of an interesting twist on the, uh, on the Catholic father thing in that particular mm-hmm. time period. Yeah. yeah. Hey, he straight up calls her a whore, uh, a couple times, right to her face. Yeah. Um, yeah. so there's, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, I, I re, on my rewatch and I, it had been a few years since I had rewatched this two or three at least. And so I rewatched the film again and I was curious, you know, at the end, you know, Bob Hoskins has this incredible speech where he's basically drugged her and she's like slowly going out. And he's basically, that's the moment where he's sort of explaining to her who he is in a very real way. And he mentions all of the girls that he has helped Mm -hmm. quote unquote helped before, but he mentions that he had never let them into the house and he had never let them in. And I take that as truth. I believe that comment. And I'm curious, what were your thoughts? Why do you think, Felicia was the exception there. Why did he attach to her in a way that he did not attach to the others? You know, we don't get a ton of um, scenes with the other victims, but I'll say this from, from the, just from the blush that we get of these characters, um, Felicia seems like more of an innocent. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, but there, there, it's a little problematic. Where I think you're, where, where, where the, the reason I think it is. Okay, well, I'm just, I'll finish what I was going to say, and yeah. then you can. I, I, I don't necessarily know. I don't. I, in my brain, from what I got from this, was that there was just an element of, I, I of. He speaks a lot, almost religiously, of Felicia. Um, that he 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 projects all these angel like qualities onto her, seeing heaven in her eyes, all of this kind of stuff. Um, I think that that, in some way or another, saves her life. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but what were you going to say, Kenny? I think it's because they're all sex workers, and she's not. 
Um, uh, yeah, I mean, were they all? I, I couldn't tell if they, were they all hookers. I, I, I mean, I, it well, seemed it I, seemed that way, but so it was. Yeah. It, it was explicit with some of them, and I think okay. the insinuation implied, was all of yeah. all of them yeah. were. And uh, which would make sense it, to be able to kill seven women and for nobody to notice. It would make sense that they were all sex workers, and it makes me yes. feel like that's why Bob Hoskins' character felt like he was sent an angel because yeah. he happened to be oh, sent a normal untouched you know obviously wow. she was but but a but a, but but you know an average everyday woman as opposed to a sex worker yeah um and i think that that I agree with them. Yeah. that is you know it, it i don't know it, it gets me thinking about serial killer movies in general because in very often Sex workers are the victims of serial killers. Very, very often, from Jack, from Jack, yep. Jack the Ripper through the Boston Strangler, and on and on and on. Um, and in movies, uh, I think Hollywood has decided they don't make sympathetic victims. And I think that that's I think that that is seen here to some extent. So it makes me a little uncomfortable to 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 go down this road because I really think this is a, a, a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like there is this idea of Felicia is a more worthy person. And I think because the, she doesn't, the, yeah. the, the innocence you're putting onto it is specifically what I think was implied by the fact that she's not a sex worker. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I do think there there does seem to be, you know, speaking of, of, of other sort of I don't want to say problematic subject matter, but but certainly complicated subject matter is uh is the abortion that also takes place in this film um you know essentially uh hilditch kind of talks her into having an abortion sort of um you know and and i don't i don't quite know thematically or what i don't know that this film is is taking a stance one way or the other about abortion i don't i don't think it it is. is yeah um but i do think it's interesting that a man who seems to have no problem killing people um, is the person to sort of convince her to end this life that that exists potentially inside of her. Because I just he think there's, there's something going on there. Because he can't kill her knowing there's a child inside. It of her, feels a little which bit is, like that. Which it, which he says it. He says it at yeah. the end. He was like, "I couldn't put you to rest." No, like he says straight out, I couldn't kill you knowing you have a life inside of you. And so I would say with what you just said, Kenny, I would argue with that a little bit only in the sense of like up until a certain point, whether you're a whether you're a sex worker or not, Felicia was going to die. I mean, he is digging her grave like she Mm -hmm. is dead. So it really doesn't matter at that point. Like at that point, she's no worthier than a sex worker, really, other than she was allowed into his house. But they're all meeting the same end. Now, the only thing that changes his mind is that weird sort of deus machina of the, you know, Jamaican uh, proselyte who is coming to, you know, try to convert him. And that sort of in that moment sort of makes him feel a level of maybe guilt or shame that he hasn't necessarily felt before in any substantive way. And I think that moment is the only thing that mm-hmm. saves Felicia's life. Like that well, moment did, is the only thing that does it. Well, there were two things that that I that were different about Felicia. The first was she told people about him. Yeah. So I think on some level he might have thought, well, I'm cooked anyway, and people are gonna find out about what I've done anyway. 
again, yeah. perhaps. But, is, but is it that, or is the other read, which is my read, is that not that I'm cooked, but that she cares. She thought enough about me to mention to me sure. to somebody else. I love both those reads. I think yeah. I think those are both possible. Yeah. But then the, the the other big thing, and I whether this is coincidence or not. He's unsuccessful in killing her. Um, what he drugs her, it feels like that was the. I, I think he thought she was dead. I think that the fact that she wakes up from the from the sleeping pills. Oh, or the, see, I or didn't take, That was not the way I took that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, again, I'm just. I'm. I, it's just my. No, read, no, it's perfectly valid. Which yeah. is that she she wakes up, she almost escapes, and it's sort of that moment where he says, where he chooses to let her go. Um, so I, what do yeah, you? Kenny, let's let's. So you're saying that his mode of murder is forced overdose, not not arguing with that. Yeah, but forced overdose is uh, a forced overdose is a very uh, tranquil way to go, a very calm, forgiving. Um, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Um, you, it, it's a humanist way to sure, end someone's sure, life, sure, I sure. guess. Humane, yeah, yeah. Sure. Main way to end someone's life. That's the word. And um, and so let's say that's what it is. Uh, why does he do it? Um, that's because you know most serial killers tend to do it because they fucking love it, and he seems to do it more uh, in a mercy killing kind of way. Well, mm-hmm. I I see it as I'll say this. My the only reason I don't think that is it because he makes a comment in that last speech talking about what when he kills the girls he doesn't say kill them but he says they were all asleep when I did it. So he's doing mm. something to them when they are asleep. Now, whether that is smothering you, or whatever, smothering yeah. them, stab, whatever. I mean, he's killing like, them in the car, whatever yes. he's doing, he's doing yeah. it in the car. Yeah. Yes. So that's the only thing that makes me think something else is happening there is because of that comment. But why is he doing it? I think it is. I think he tells us why he's doing it in that speech. He said he is lonely. He finds these women who make him less lonely, but then they always want to leave. And when they leave, Mm -hmm. that's when he does it because he doesn't want them to leave. And I, to me, it is just an eternal quest to, to sort of cure his loneliness, but he just, he keeps, it keeps happening the same way over and over again. Now that may also just be what he's telling himself to a degree that the Mm -hmm. reason that he's doing it, obviously we don't really get the sense. I don't think they tell us one way or another if he likes what he's doing or not. I think if anything, it leans more towards he doesn't like what he's doing. But um, but we don't really get an answer either way on that. I mean, you can read the ending. For those who don't know, it is a spoiler. He does hang himself at the end of the film. Yeah, like he goes into the kitchen, he hangs it. And we don't know if he's hanging himself because he's afraid he's about to get found out. If he doesn't want to kill anymore. If he th- I mean, we don't really know why. Yeah, I mean... My takeaway was that he did it because I thought because he thought he was going to get caught. But but all that being said, I do think that you know he he gives that speech to to her about how uh, he killed these women when they were quote unquote going to leave him. Yeah. Um, so much of it is about loneliness. His mother left him. Um, he 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 clearly is a, a very lonely person. And and the way that Bob Hoskins delivers that line is truly heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, that being said. 
and I don't want to drill too hard into this because it's not really worth it, but like there are logistical questions I have about like these other victims leaving him. They never were in his house. If these women were were prostitutes, I don't I, I just I just don't quite really understand the logistics of how and why he killed these other women. Um, and, and quite frankly, I'm not even really sure the movie really wants us to think that much about that. Like, it's really the relationship yeah. between Hilditch and Felicia that we're most invested in. Sure, um, sure. So, you know, obviously, I'm choosing to, to focus on that. But the impression I got was that... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was like a father-daughter relationship. And on some level, he felt as though he was doing her a favor by, you know, releasing her from, from this, this life. Now, in the book... The book focuses, again, I haven't read the book, but I'm just based on the Wikipedia page on the book. The book seemed to be much, Felicia was homeless. It seemed to be much more about sort of a lot more class issues going sure. on. Um, and it's much more sort of a haves and have nots um, and and sort of, you know, just, just broken systems and how people fall between the cracks and, and whatnot, um, which is just different tonally than what obviously they're doing here. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't quite know that... Uh, the end of this, the very, very end of this movie, post him killing himself, is us catching back up with Felicia. She seems to be working for the city now, planting trees and bushes yeah. and things, um, which is lovely, I guess. Um, <laughs> that is never how the movie ends to me. Like, it's a right. surprise to me every time I watch it in that piece of <laughs> To me, this movie ends with him hanging himself, and that's the end of the movie. I, I almost yeah. turned off my, my DVD player when, because it he hangs himself and it goes to sort of a snowy static, like the black and white television that he was watching throughout the film, and I was like, okay, we're done. And and seconds after that, it you see her in the park, and I was like, uh, okay, it yeah. feels so tacked on. It you don't it, get it, it. it does, and I again, even this last rewatch, I, it hit me again. I was like, oh god, that's right, we have this piece at the end. It really <laughs> doesn't do anything because it's not a bookend because she doesn't open the film like. So it's it's a very weirdly tacked on. No, it's it it's it's not my favorite part because what I would have liked uh, to have what I would have liked to have had happen was he hangs and then you do that exact same tracking shot you did at the beginning out of the house, house and yeah. you just end where you began yeah. and like that's a great way to end that film totally yeah now there's there I I think it's um I think as it is it's uh, very on the nose in terms of dust is where we go at the end and dust is where life begins. I mean, dirt is where life begins and, you know, the ashes to ashes, dust to dust 
thing. Like giving the toy to the little girl that drops it's, her stuffed animal in the park. Yeah. It also, just, I mean, yeah, it was like the end of Terminator 2. I feel like that was a test screen. <laughs> I feel like that was a test screening where someone was like, but this is called Felicia's journey and we don't know what, where Felicia ends right. up. And it's like, I feel like that was a, a bad note in a test screening that made that tacked on ending happen. I agree a hundred percent. And you like, just, I, you just don't need it. You don't need it at all because, because it's called Felicia's journey. And it is a lot about Felicia's journey, but it is just as much Hilditch's journey. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so I would argue it's, it's, I would, I would too. I mean, hers. and so, yeah, that's you, just such, I, I uh, think he would insist upon calling it Felicia's journey. But yeah. it's his journey. It's exactly right. Yeah. It's exactly right. It's exactly I, right. You know, it's. I would also say too, not to take anything away from Elaine Cassie's performance, which I, which I think is quite good. She, she, she unfortunately didn't really go on to do a ton of movies after this, but she still does um, stuff in the UK. Like she's still a big fixture in like UK okay, TV okay. circuit, but she doesn't do a lot of film work. Yeah. It's just, it's. I mean, Bob Hoskins is so towering in this movie yeah. that it's it's one of those you know roles, and and we've seen many of them where um, you you almost I don't want to say feel bad, but you're looking at this other actor that's trying to go toe to toe in yep. these scenes, and also Felicia, who is such a quiet inward character, it's just it's just tough because like Bob is just eating the scenery around her. Um, I think she holds her own. Don't get me wrong, but I do yeah. think that it's like, um, you know, you you do wonder whether or not someone like the performances that come to mind. Ironically, are both Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, Daniel Day Lewis performances. But I think about him against Paul Dano, yeah. him against uh, Nikki Creeps, and it's just like both of those actors they can- give him a fucking fight, right? Like they really are able to go toe to toe with Daniel Day Lewis. You I do wish that there was someone that might have just been able to bring a little bit more of something to Felicia. I don't know if you guys feel the same. No, I feel the same way. I, I look at it, I call it the I call it the Meryl Streep conundrum. Because you get Meryl Streep in a scene with most actors who aren't Meryl Streep and there is a discernible level. And and this this can even be yeah. amazing actors. Yeah. Like it, amazing actors. Like I mean like there are very few times when Meryl Streep is sharing a scene with somebody where you're like they're her equal. I think of like Doubt with Philip Seymour Hoffman. You got them going at each other, and you're like these two are electric right. together. But that doesn't happen much. And I, I agree with you 100. percent I think I think Bob Hoskins is do is giving such I I've always called it a god level performance, and I still insist on it's that. Great. It's great. He is so fantastic, and she as good as she is just can't keep up. Like she's running as fast as she can and she can't keep up with him. And it is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the film for me because I think she does exactly what the role needs her to do. Mm -hmm. It's just, he's on such a different level. Like just in terms of like just talent experience, totally what he's bringing to that character, his understanding of that character is just totally different. You you bring up Meryl Streep, and I want to tell a very quick tangent. I don't know if you guys heard this story that Jennifer Lawrence told about how on set of Don't Look Up, they would call her goat. Yeah, I've heard it, yeah. Uh, it's an amazing story. Basically, yeah. they called her goat, which is greatest of all time, you know, for anyone who doesn't uh, doesn't yeah. know. And everyone on set was calling her that. Cast, crew, directors, everyone's like, goat's going to go here, goat's going to go there. And then I guess they were at some, well, a panel or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And they... <laughs> 
that Meryl just thought they were calling her an old goat the whole time. Yeah. Like literally oh. didn't know the goat meant greatest of all time. She, she's like, I'm an old goat. So they're just telling me to go. Oh my goodness. To go there, yeah. which I think it's and she, the, what's great is that how fine she was with being called yeah, She's a goat. like, I get it. I'm an old I, goat. It's, and it's like, and they're like, no, greatest of all time. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you that, that, uh, that Elaine Cassidy is given a, uh, you know, a difficult role. It's a, it's a tough role. Yeah. It's an yeah. the other role. kind of goat. Yeah. The other, the other kind of goat. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's an affectation. Uh, I don't know if maybe that's the right word, but uh, Hilditch watching his TV with opera glasses is such an incredible, yep. creepy thing. Like he's got this. For people who haven't seen the film, he's sitting in his dining room eating uh, uh, fondue, yeah. and he's got the TV plugged in, receded into the kitchen. So it's a TV that he has to watch with these fucking opera glasses. That I just think is such a creepy and amazing thing, but. Well, and let's talk about, you know what, let's talk about his job for a second, because yeah, I please. find his job fascinating. Me he, he said he was a, a, a cafeteria. Well, he, he claims he's a catering manager, but yeah. well, well, come on, Hildreth, I know what you are. <laughs> yeah, like, they, like, it's a factory, like, and he, like, caters for the people who work there, yeah. but his job is ostensibly just walking into the kitchen, tasting things that they prepared, I assume, based on his recipes, mm-hmm. and if it is not exactly the way he remembers that recipe tasting as a child, he can't he can't deal with it. He just can't I, deal he with vomits. it. He vomits. <laughs> I felt the same way. I Immediately, that's the kind of job that gets you going. You know, as a... As, you, it, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, we've all eaten in cafeterias. The food's made by somebody. They're using someone's recipe. There is a a head chef, an executive chef there. I have never considered that person because I'm an asshole. And here they are killing people like I always expected. But I I love that weird ass job. Yes, I'm crazy about it. And I like the idea that, you know, that it's. It, it, that he makes enough money and he's important enough. He has a nice big office in this beautiful yeah. manner. <laughs> there's there's a, there's a throwaway moment that I love where he's walking through the factory and he shows something that he made under a bowl to like one of the workers and, and lets like him gives try him a it. thumbs yeah. up. Yeah, and let's the workers him try it. Like, sure, man, whatever. Like, it's there is something I know what you're like. Any there's there it is it is. I mean, part of it too. I imagine that a Bob Hoskins must have been thrilled to have that kind of like weird specificity of what his job is and all these weird little, you know, uh, predilections and things that are going on in, in Hilditch's life. But at the same time, Bob Hoskins makes them feel so much bigger and more interesting and more complex than they might very well have been in the hands of somebody else. What's, you know, it's so, the the word I keep wanting to use about this film is uh, not judgmental. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, also observational, but it's not quite that it's because uh, it's empathetic towards this yep. character. You have too much of this character's backstory and, you know, hints of I think Ebert calls it smothering. Uh, I think that there are hints of some sexual abuse going on there as well mm-hmm. that uh, that that make you have to at least think of this person as um, as someone who's had a traumatic life. Yeah. And uh, and through that lens, at least begin to understand why he didn't quite turn out right. Sure. But, uh, you know, the, the other thing is like his mother was a chef and a famous one at that. It doesn't appear his father was in the picture. And he went into the family business at the lowest level possible. Mm-hmm. Um, in another movie, that'd be a big driver. 
you know what I mean? That'd be a, a big story point of what a uh, of what a disappointment I am. And yeah. he doesn't look at that at all. He, no. that, that's not how that comes out at all. This is this is just a kitchen. This is a kitchen. I I I make the recipes my mom made, and um, I have a certain level of importance here. And I think that that kind of speaks to a detachment he has to reality. Because I think he maybe, you know, most people I think would feel a, a certain sense of lack of fulfillment mm-hmm. um, or not measuring up. And uh, I think that, that, you know, that you read that, you know, closely, I think it does start to speak to this is a guy who uh, who, who is operating a little differently than the rest of us, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Thinking. Well, there's a great moment. Uh, early in the film where one of his, I guess, um, fellow workers is coming to him with this proposal for how they can automate the, the oh, cooking. Yeah. Like they can, they can do it, the vending machines and they can do it without any employees. And yeah, he and saves it, the cat. Yeah. And it's, 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 and it's very much, and he's very much, you know, like, no, like, you know, food needs to be prepared by hands, by people because there's love involved and like, and that's, what's so great about that character. That character is such a contradiction in so many ways. Cause like in, on one hand, it's like, it's even in, in that horrible tacked on ending at the end. The only thing we, the, the only thing out of there that I take away is that she does say, you know, like, you know, yes, he was someone who murdered somebody, but he still had a soul and he still had these things. And it's like, not that we need to hear that. Like, I think we can deduce yeah. that for ourselves, but like the fact that he does seem like in a large degree, he is a caring person. He is somebody who, does care about people it's just there are there are certain people in certain situations where it's just like that shuts off and it turns into this other thing but like that's that's the contradiction to me that's fascinating it's just that you have those moments where he is genuinely concerned and caring about other people and you could say that well he's just trying to put on an act so no one finds out but it doesn't come across that way it comes across like he genuinely does care and it's just He's in this position where he has to do this other thing that is in diametrically opposed to these other parts of who he is. And which is also what makes the ending so fascinating to me and trying to understand like why he does what he does, like why he lets her go, why he does kill himself. Like, you know, does he let her go because maybe he sees in her another traumatized person, but maybe this traumatized person has a chance to grow from that which is something he was not able to do. Like it's just so many different possibilities there, which again is Adam McGoyan doing what Adam McGoyan does great in terms of like not tying things up in these neat little bows. Yeah. You you nailed it. You nailed it. Like take psycho for instance, Mm -hmm. every time Anthony Perkins is not uh, doing something creepy on his own, he is playing a character. I mean, the, I mean, you know, um, Fuck, who's the fuck's what the fuck's Anthony Norman Bates is playing oh, yeah. Norman Bates is playing a character. He's yeah. putting on an act, right? Yeah. He is not himself, and you as the audience know that. Yeah. I think that I think that there is a reading of this screenplay, a reading of this text that another actor could have had that is Bob Hoskins' character, Hildridge, putting on an act at yeah. all times. A little slicker, a little more smarmy, a little more, a little more outwardly charming, but the real Hildridge is the guy who goes home and kills people. That's not what we get. Yeah. That's why this movie that's why this movie and this yeah. performance stands, you know, above and aside aside and above a lot of other serial killer movies because he is both of these things at the same time. 
He yeah. is a, hum- a humanist and he is also someone who has a kind of crooked understanding of how to be with another person. Oh, it's kind of a skew understanding of how to be with another person. But I think most films wouldn't have the guts to paint such a fully formed serial killer character. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, this this is, I think, what Ebert's talking about when he says a week later, you, you, you it hasn't left you. And it's brilliant because Goyan's not wrapping it up. And Hoskins has given you such a unique performance, far like like far more nuanced and interesting than than um the Hannibal Lecter, for instance. You know, yeah, I know exactly what Hannibal Lecter is from the moment I meet him. Right? And there's no and there's no nuance there either. No, like there's no nuance. The, the, and it's the, not that and, and nuance doesn't mean quality. It just is there's no nuance. The problem, the problem I and I look, I enjoy the Thomas Harris, I enjoy all of that stuff as much as the next person, but my big issue with Hannibal Lecter as a character mm-hmm. has always been to me the lack of nuance and there's sort of a monotone feeling with that character where I don't see much arc and I don't see much. And you're right. I don't get that with this character at all. Like there's a lot to dig at underneath the surface. Um, and, and, and that's something I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, I think it's, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, yeah. Sorry, Phil. I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, don't worry. Hannibal Lecter, you know, I, I always am banging the drum about uh, lead performance versus supporting performances. And what it takes to be a lead performance and what it takes to be a supporting performance. And Hannibal Lecter is not a lead performance, never was, never should be. Um, because in at no point are are you supposed to empathize with this character. At no point is this guy uh the POV of the scene. At no point. He is a villain, he is a monster, he is he is a uh a a, a problem to be solved, he is a dilemma to be dealt with. And that's cool, and he can win best supporting actor all day long, but it's not the same as being the character that the audience has to side with, which is the hardest job uh, an actor can do to make the audience actually empathize with you. And for Bob Hoskins to pull that off while he's also playing a serial killer is astounding. Astounding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, I think, I think Hoskins is, is tremendous in this moment. I was just looking at the best actor nominations in 99. Um, I mean, I think both Kenny and I would agree that Kevin Spacey shouldn't uh, shouldn't not only have not won, but probably shouldn't be up there anymore. Uh, he should probably have to give oh, his Oscar to, to uh, Russell Crowe for The Insider. But I do think that you know Richard Farnsworth is tremendous in Straight Story. I, I think Sean Penn in Sweet and Lowdown is is very good. Denzel Washington in The Hurricane. I love Denzel. Um, I'm looking forward to covering that film again. I I, I saw it back in '99. It, it didn't leave much of an impression on me. He might be yeah. very good in that film, but I'm, I'm I think not Hoskins, sure, Phil. That yeah. Any of those five are going to make my five at the end. In fact, I don't think so because I because I don't even think that that Russell Crowe gets the best performance in that movie. So oh, here's the like, question like, though: He likes I love like Pacino? Pacino in that movie. Yeah. Yes. What are the, what are the chances that, that Bob Hoskins makes sure? I think there's a good chance. Pretty yeah. high, I think. Yeah. Pretty high. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, what I would it's agree with be, you though, but, Kenny. Yeah. That I don't. I, I'm just to 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 you know to to mirror what you're saying. I don't think any of those five are in my five. Crawl by make yours. I know you like that, but Pacino, Pacino might get the double nomination for uh he might be <laughs> two of Sunday. the slots for this in any of The Sunday. only one of those five that I would 
if I was making a list, would be Richard Farnsworth because I do think he's, he's I very, think his performance good. is really strong in Straight Story. The yeah. others, you know, I'm, I'm, I can give or take. I remember Hurricane Denzel's. Denzel is as good as he always is. Yeah, he's always great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, there's, you know, you should be giving him an Oscar for J- John Q just as easily as you should be for the Hurricane because sure. it's like he's always at that same level of like performance. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it was sort of, I think it was definitely a travesty that Bob Hoskins was not nominated given yeah. the way the Oscar season works. I understand why he was not nominated. Uh, I think had this film yeah. done better, had they had a better strategy, it probably would be a different story, but um, I mean, the 99 know, Oscars are, are a travesty in so many ways that Kenny and I have gone over. Uh, but like it, it, it is shocking with a year this rife with tremendous films and tremendous performances that these are the nominations and winners that we had is, yeah. is baffling. Yeah. It's also, you know, like, I feel like Bob Hoskins is one of those performers that is, now that he's passed on, unfortunately, like, he's just one that we don't think about or talk about much anymore mm-hmm. in terms of, like, just how good he was. I mean, he's, there's always going to be Roger Rabbit. Like, that is always going to be there. But then I think about, like, other films like Unleashed, like, a.k.a. Danny the Dog with Jet Li, which is actually... I brought that up on this, on this podcast it's, before. It's actually, yeah. a great, it's actually a great film. And part of what's so great about it is Bob Hoskins' so menacing. unhinged performance. Yeah. He's so fucking menacing. But, like, he brought that to every role. And, like, I think it's, it's always okay. nice that we can... Yeah, absolutely. Like, Bob Hoskins was one of those... When he would go over the... And he went over the top a lot. But it worked. But it worked. No, like, for sure. Always I mean, he, I mean, uh, The Long Good Friday, uh, Mona Lisa. I mean, yeah. those are some of his earlier films. But he's, I mean, he is really good in Hook. I mean, he's fun in Hook. Um, he's just, he had a really, really fascinating career. Um, yeah. Playing heavies. I mean, he plays, um, uh, he plays Hoover. Doesn't he play Hoover play, in, uh, yeah. in Nixon? Playing yes. heavies, yeah, he's unbelievable. Man. He's Playing so heavies man. is uh, is the is kind of the, the secret Bob Hoskins that I think Americans don't really know or they didn't really get. <laughs> yeah. um, but he's guy. I mean, he's like he's like a British Joe Pesci, and I say that uh, I, say, I say that with all. Yeah. Joe Pesci's like my favorite actor. So, you know, <laughs> like, 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 not, like nothing but compliments, nothing but flowers. I mean, I mean, people, people over here think about Bob Hoskins. They think of Roger Rabbit. They think of Roger Super Rabbit. Mario, Super yeah, Mario, Super Brothers. Mario Brothers, Mermaids. Yeah, like yeah, mer- he's great. Oh, he's great. He's great. Mermaids. Yeah. He's so good. Mermaids. He looks <laughs> yeah. great so much. He's great so much. Yeah. Like he's also and, a bit of a yeah, he's a babe. I mean, he's got a great he's look. A hot guy. He's got a great look. <laughs> yeah, I think. I think you know. I think he is the he is the meme of like this is what. A man's body's supposed to look like, right? <laughs> like this is peak. This is peak male performance. I'm not even yeah. joking. I think I like, know. They, I know. <laughs> he's hot in mermaids. Yeah, he's shirtless a fair amount in mermaids. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's that's a really. Great. That's a. That's a really. That's a really good film. That's a really. But good film. yeah, I. He's. You know, he's one of those guys that you know left behind just so many great performances and was probably not. You know. There's been lots of obviously people have talked about Roger Rabbit a lot. Um, you know, he wasn't the first guy that they obviously went to. There were any number of other sort oh, of sure. noirish guys that they went to, and 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 quite frankly, it felt like no one really thought this movie was going to work. They thought it was going to be a fucking disaster. So he, you know, he was just the guy that they could get relatively inexpensively. Turns oh, out he's fucking perfect. Like he's just so good in that film and so game. I mean, when you think about what he had to go through in 1987 when they made that film. 
you know, I'm sure we've all seen clips of the behind the scenes of how they made Roger Rabbit, and it's a miracle of a movie. It, yeah. it should not work, but yeah. you know, it's 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 tremendous. But yeah, um, so yeah, I, I I do feel like this film um, stayed with me a lot more this time than it did when I saw. I mean, I have not seen it since 1999, so yeah. this was a much more sort of clear eyed, um, and just you know, an older seeing it through older eyes and, and seeing it, you know, through, uh, through experience and other films, I thought it was much, much better than I thought it was back, back in the day. Um, do you want to rate this film, Kenny? Yeah, let's rate it. So back in 99, um, I probably would have given it a 65 out of 99. I think that I liked it fine. Um, I think I was probably like, unfortunately, some people might've been disappointed in this after Sweet Hereafter. Um, just in terms of wanting something, perhaps the thing about Sweet Hereafter, not to keep belaboring this point on Sweet Hereafter, but I'll just say this, um, the Sweet Hereafter actually does have catharsis. Um, it is, it is a film that does give you the release. Um, it allows you to feel the grief. It allows, you know, spoiler, Sarah Polly to destroy the, 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 you know, the case against the various people, um, you know, it, it it just, you feel vindicated as a viewer. This film really doesn't let you have that. Um, and, and intentionally so. So I imagine I left the theater back then feeling, I don't, Rob's the wrong word, but just unsure of how I should feel about the film. Um, watching it the other day, I liked it a lot more. Um, I'd probably give it a 75. And now after talking about it, I think, I think I'm probably at a 79. I feel like 79, 80, something like that. I think it's a, I think it's a really good movie. And I think it's, um, Definitely one of Ogoyan's best, for sure. But uh, what about you, Kenny? I'd never seen this before. I gave it a 78 before this podcast. I'm going to go up a bit, actually. I'm going to go up to like an 84. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a great film. I think it's a really great film. And uh, it's funny, because I was wa- I, as I was watching this, I tend to be a little, and I've said it on the podcast before, I, I tend not to love to reward films as a whole, because of a great central performance. I'm sure. the same um, way. I'm the same it way. Just, it, it's a different thing. And, you know, sometimes in, stage, uh, in a stage performance, I, I, I'll feel differently. But there's something about filmmaking. And Billy Ray, you've made a bunch of films. And Phil and I have worked on TV a lot. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's so disjointed on set sure. that so much of the, the performance is something that has been cobbled together in, a, in the edit. But uh, this is the exception. You know, this was so there. There's something about this uh, performance, this particular performance that is so unique and nuanced and 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 brilliant and unexpected uh, and, uh, you know, singular. I I think that's really what it comes down to. It's a singular performance. And I don't even think um, it's a singular character on paper. So I really do give Hoskins and Agoyan a ton of credit for for finding this in it. Uh, 84. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way as you. I don't typically, I typically am put off by films. Like, I, I, there's a, I, I'm, I'm notorious for not liking No Country for Old Men. I don't enjoy that film. I think without Javier Bardem, the film does not work at all. And, um, and I, so I'm the same way. Like, I can appreciate that Javier Bardem is giving a good performance, I say good because like Hannibal Lecter to me, there is no nuance in his performance, but it's supposed to be that way. He's supposed to be a killing machine. He's supposed to be a shark. Like, and I get that, but again, you take him out of it and it thought to me, that movie does not hold up. And so I tend to judge films pretty harshly when that's the case. Um, I, I feel like 
I feel like, like you said, this is sort of an exception for me because I do feel like without Hoskins, like I can't imagine another actor in this role yeah. necessarily. So like, but I feel like I'm forgiving of this film for that when I'm not for others. And I think it does, it is just because of how good Bob Hoskins is. Like he is so good and he's so empathetic and so menacing, but all, like all of those things. And um, yeah, I'm contradict. I'm a contradiction, but that's okay. I'm happy with that. I can, I can live with so, that. So, so from zero to ninety nine, what would you give this film back in ninety nine, and what would you give it now? Um, in ninety nine, I probably would have given it um, because I was a shit. I probably would have given it like a ninety nine. I would have told you it was perfect <laughs> back then. Now, you know, having seen it a few times since and judging it, I'm more in like the eighty six, eighty seven range. Probably, um, okay. I think it's. I think it would be higher without that tacked on ending. Um, I think if that ending was gone, we'd be at like a ninety. And that, but sure. that's probably where the max where I would go because it is it is my second favorite Adam McGoyan film. It's not mm-hmm. my favorite. Uh, Sweet Hereafter is my favorite. I think it yeah. is his masterpiece. Um, this is right behind that for me. I, I think this is, okay. is real. I think it's real close behind for me. Um, and you know, if I was if this look if this was screen drafts. And I was doing an Adam McGoyan draft. This would be my number two. If I was doing a Bob Hoskins draft, it'd be my number one. Wow. And um, yeah. it would straight up be my number one. And would, uh, it, would it be your number one, Kenny? Bob Hoskins? No, of course not. What's, made, what's your number one? Who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, that's <laughs> nope. the best fucking film of all time. Nope. That'd be I my number That'd be my no. I mean, that's not even that, that. That means nothing when it comes to Felicia's journey. I mean, like, yes, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I. I've said it. I think I think Weird Roger Rabbit is like the film. It's like it's the everything. It's we did it. We could stop making movies. <laughs> I mean, listen, talk about two very different performances, but, yes. but I think it speaks volumes to the the breadth and the and the range that he had as an actor. Yeah. I mean, I would be hard pressed to yeah. not put Roger Rabbit as my number one yeah, Bob Roger Hoskins, Rabbit, but, but but it's also just because that movie is like, I mean, I, I innumerable watches as a child. Like that movie is just, it's okay. a different animal. They're just, it's apples it's, and oranges. Yeah, but, it'd be my number two easily, but right, I, right, right, right. yeah, I'd be my number two easily. I think uh, I've said this too. There's no such thing as a, a film about a villain. I don't think you can make a film about a villain. Right. Right. Um, Unless you're Henry portrait of a killer. You, let me let me admit that you could make a film about a villain, right? right. You could make a film about a villain. It's just not going to be. Uh, it's just not going to be a a a typical Hollywood movie. Um, Henry Portrait of a Killer is an interesting, you know, counterpoint. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do, you know, I I like. For instance, Daniel Plainview is one of the great "quote unquote" villains in sure. uh, in cinema, but he's not a villain at all. He's a tragic hero. Uh, it only works because he's a tragic hero. Sure. And I think this film is about you know a tragic hero, a serial killer, uh, who you're supposed to you know get inside his brain and understand that it didn't have to go this way. So I think that maybe on paper you might read this as this is about a villain, but it's actually not. So. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't disagree. I, I think that there is a, there is a tenderness and and I I, I, haz, I hazard to say a childlike quality to this sort of arrested development that exists in Joseph's character that 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 Hoskins brings to him, that makes him feel so fragile 
and and lonely and sad and broken yeah. and human um in a way that that sort of you know makes your brain sort of misfire like he's clearly killing people like th- this man's clearly got you know psychological problems and there's just a complexity to it that i think unfortunately or fortunately i don't know depending on how you look at it th- there there is something very binary about what people generally go to films about villains and serial killers right you know what i mean good, bad, good, evil, this person's evil. You know what I mean? The, the reason people love a Hannibal Lecter is because it's so campy and big and over the top and, and sort of like scary, but in a way that feels almost playful and huge. I mean, like it's doing a bunch of things and playing yeah. into all these sort of notions of what we want from a killer. This movie is, is literally zagging completely off of all of that, um, which makes it such a, a brilliant performance. I like the um, idea of a serial yeah. killer movie without a kill. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I do too. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I do too. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Billy Ray, on the film that we're covering next week and the filmmaker Ooh. that we're covering next week. Um, we are doing Splendor, uh, the Greg Araki film. Um, wow. Uh, we have uh, Jan Katas coming on for that, um, past and future guest, um, the, the the man behind our theme songs and all of our uh, our artwork. Um, he, uh, he came on for Splendor, which... Was a it was a really fun episode, I thought, Kenny, and a, a, yeah, a weird great. movie. Totally, forgot um, we did it, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I but I'm curious as to you know, do you have thoughts on Gregoraki? I don't know if you've seen Splendor in particular, Billy Ray, but I I, I, I saw it once years ago. I've mm-hmm. not seen it in ages. Um, yeah. I am a big Gregoraki fan. Um, yeah. Like I was, I was super into Gregoraki in the '90s, like sure. like with. Um, Doom Doom Generation Generation. and Nowhere and like, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, especially, you know, into Mysterious Skin. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, um, wow, it'll be interesting because I I, I have so little memories of of Splendor. I have so few memories of Splendor. Well, it's Um, it's definitely his attempt at, yeah. I know, I know, I know, know, what's his name? Um, I know Shaq's in it. I know Johnny Sheck is in it. (laughs) He is. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, oh my God, why am I drawing a blank on her name now? Kathleen Uh, Robertson. Kathleen Robertson. Kathleen Robertson. Yeah. And uh, Matt Kessler. Didn't I wind up loving this film? You did. You did. <laughs> yeah. you, 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 yeah. you very much came into this being like, wait yeah. a second, do I love Gregoraki now? Yeah. Gregoraki, yeah. he's one of those like endlessly creative filmmakers who's never been given the chance to like go up that next level. Yep. Like yep. he's all his films are always sort of at this same level yeah. of like a budget yeah. and and everything and like he just hasn't been given that opportunity and I think I feel like he's made sort of I think he's sort of found his way into television more yeah he did a and, star show yeah um, that that yeah. Yeah. And so, but yeah, I, I, he's someone that I was like, why don't find somebody can Blumhouse, somebody give this guy $4 million, let him make, let him make something like, well, I think he's a really fascinating um, filmmaker ahead of the game when it comes to sort of the way he played with gender roles, the way he yeah. played with what, you know, what is expected of, of, of men within movies, what's expected of women within movies. Oh, he's a top with, tier you know, queer filmmaker. Like in yeah, terms of yes. like queer content, he's one of the top. Yeah. Mysterious Skin being, you know, one of those films that I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I was surprised that Mysterious Skin wasn't the film that kind of broke him out more and that he didn't yeah. get more opportunities off of that film. But um, yeah, we, we, as we talk about on the episode, a fascinating filmmaker um, who, to your point, sort of really had this moment in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, aesthetically, if nothing else, like he was a guy that you were like, I know a Gregoraki film from one frame of, of, of his films. Yeah, uh, There's not a lot of people you can say that about. 
Well, and whereas Sweet Hereafter was sort of a Goyans sure. like hit moment, <laughs> Mysterious Skin was yeah. definitely Greg Araki's hit moment where it yeah. was like, okay, like it was by far, I would say his most acclaimed film, yeah. most successful mm-hmm. film. Most grounded um, film too. Yeah. And so I think again, like he zigged when he could have zagged. Yep. And yep. but you know, he still made some really good stuff since then though, too. Like mm-hmm. he's made some really good films. Mm-hmm. And um it's just it's just not gone the way it could have gone necessarily. Yeah, um, he's Mysterious Skin is one of those films that, and we've talked about this before, Kenny, uh, with with mm-hmm. many of the the smaller films that we've done on this podcast. But like, I'd love that movie to pop up on the Criterion Collection and and get it a little yeah. bit. You know what I mean? Get yeah. it some yeah. eyeballs. Um, you know, Girl on the Bridge. We talked about that when we did that episode. Like, I would die for that to be in the Criterion Collection. Like, just these movies, these beautiful small movies. You know, Criterion is one of the few places I feel like can get a little bit of a groundswell around a film that, that it might not have had before. Does, does Sweet Hereafter have a criterion? It does not. See, that's really another, doesn't? Cri- like that's, that's a, very, that's a perfect, that's a perfect I, film for, for a criterion. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, or Exotica or Felicia's Journey. Like, I, I do yeah. think that, you know, I, I know that Criterion as a company, I imagine, is not the most lucrative company in the world. Uh, I imagine that they, they you know, they, they do well for themselves, but at the same time, it's pretty niche. They really only do, you know, four to six releases every month. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it, it would be nice to see them wrap their arms around some stuff that's, uh, that's, um, you know, just, uh, modern but off the beaten path and and i feel like uh mm. i feel like mysterious skin is a good one but splendor uh a hard movie to find uh i'm sure it's i, I think we watched it on youtube kenny if i'm not I mistaken i think it was on youtube yeah I think it was on youtube um uh it's not available for streaming anywhere but uh but you can buy the dvd if you want to our listeners if they want to catch up before the episode next week but um billy ray felicia's journey is also tough to find you gotta buy oh, that yeah. on dvd as well yeah, did you buy it did on- you have it I had the DVD already, yeah, so we, I already had that. It. But you can't find it streaming anywhere. Like no. it's tough to find. It's really tough to find. It's it is you know it's a real journey. When this happens to us, it's, Kenny, a it's, veritable, prob- it's a veritable lawnmower factor. It's it's probably happened to us. I would say. I want to say like maybe 10 or 15 times over the course of this podcast, maybe a little bit more. Where that we've had to buy stuff, had to buy stuff or find it through, yeah. through means. Yeah. Um, what scares me when that happens, and I don't know if you have just thought when I when this happens, but I do. Um, physical media is going away. It seems as though less and less things get made physically. And we are just at the behest of these streaming gods to decide whether or not they want to, you know, cough up the cash in order to stream it. It's It sucks. Yeah. It's like it doesn't exist if it's not streaming. Yeah, yeah it sucks. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would like, weirdly, like I went through a period where I stopped collecting physical media for a long time. I only picked it back up a couple of years ago and now I am overwhelmed with physical media because when yeah. I go in, I go, I go balls deep. I go all in. <laughs> and so I am, I have now got an enormous collection of Blu-rays that, um, yeah, I just keep adding to by the day. I feel like I literally had Logan's run show up about two hours ago and I was like, yeah, I, Logan's uh, run's here. Oh no. I'm so sorry. You're going to watch that movie. I, I'll uh, just say this as we, uh, to, to wrap this up. I will I will agree with you, Billy Ray, that that I am in a position where um, I have slowed down considerably. Really, the only physical media I buy are Criterion's. But then recently, I have found myself. I'm thinking about getting a 4K TV. I'm thinking about getting. I'm just like. I guess I'm fucking going into the 4K, you know, yep. zone again. And I'm, because I just there's a part of me that loves how much better these things look. It's not to say that 4K digital doesn't look great. It does. But I just think that um, 
I just get scared now. I'm just like, what, what happens when they decide they don't want to fucking make this thing? I got to tell you, uh, the 4K Outsiders, which I just bought like mm, a week ago, is just <laughs> like gorgeous. There it is go. incredibly that's gorgeous. That's good. <laughs> I, no, I, well, I have, the, I have the Outsiders DVD what and do it do? does not look great. <laughs> But maybe it's I, I only buy DVDs that aren't available streaming, and I have like a fucking ton because of that. I know, I know, it's crazy. Like it's I was crazy. just pulling out, like I have like literally in my desk, they're ready, like, wild at heart, can't get it anywhere. So good, you know. The worst, the worst thing is when you, the worst thing is when you buy the media, you buy the physical media, but you're too lazy and you just buy it on streaming anyway, or you buy it on VOD anyway and watch Do it all it. the time. All the time. When I think about how many times I've been like, I could get up from the couch yeah. and grab my Criterion, or I could just press play on the fucking digital copy that I've got sitting on my iTunes. So that's yeah. what I'm going to do. Yeah, it's, oh. it's sad. Um, well, Billy Ray, thank you so, so much for coming my on. Pleasure. With us. My pleasure. This was an absolute blast. Yes. I, I know I speak for Kenny when I say that we can't wait to come on the incinerator and incinerate yep. some movies with you. So um, And we hope, I hope to do a screen draft with you someday. I have not hey. had the pleasure. I know that obviously Kenny has. It's the best. Um, Nothing but, like uh, it. But uh, we hope to have you back. We hope ah. that you'll... I know that uh, Kenny has mentioned uh, a, a baseball film, uh, perhaps, that you and Amanda Smith might uh, come on for. Yeah, we have discussed... Yes, I got to make that this. happen. Yes. We'll, we'll, yep. we'll, we'll, there's, there's a potential of that happening. But uh, uh, we can't wait to have you back. It's going to be great. And, uh, and thank you so much for, for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I look forward <laughs> to the next round. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.